Yeah, it, it should probably go without saying that we're not sponsored by anybody, you know, because they'd be expecting a certain level of production quality, I imagine, <laughs> if we were. <laughs> <laughs> Welcome to Thinking Deeply About Primary Education, the podcast that makes time and space to really think about pedagogy, teaching and learning, professional development, anything of interest to time poor but enthusiasm rich primary teachers. This week, I'm joined by Christopher Such. Hello again. And Neil Almond. Hello. And together, we're going to explore subject knowledge, and in particular, places to go when trying to improve our own subject knowledge in different disciplines we have to teach at primary. But first, Chris, what's you reading for? What you reading for? Full disclosure, this week I'm still reading Newman and Dickinson's Handbook of Early Literacy Research, and I will be for some time. So I'm going to recommend something I've been watching and listening to casually. There is a YouTube account called Veritasium from America that makes wonderful videos relating to science, engineering and mathematics and the overlap of those three, of course. If you are interested in that kind of stuff at all, I would really recommend you start with a video called This Equation Will Change How You See the World. Yes, it's a bit of a clickbait title, but you don't get millions of followers without that, I'd imagine. But look past that to the content of the videos, and what you end up with is the sort of in-depth view of science, mathematics, and engineering that... BBC Four can only dream of. It's, you know, top stuff. What about you, Neil? What are you reading for? So I'm coming back to and revisiting uh, David Didow's Making Meaning in English, exploring the role of knowledge in the English curriculum. Uh, the reason for me, first of all, starting that one is because I found out over the summer that I was going to be leading English in my current role. And I appreciate the work that um, David Didow has done, and I think he's a, a very good writer. And so I'd be quite, and him being an English uh, teacher himself, I was very interested to kind of go to do uh, a piece of writing that he had done, in this case, this book that really kind of focuses on that subject and thinking about how the argument in that book is that English isn't a sort of skills subject, it is a, a knowledge, it is something that can fit in with this knowledge rich category if you uh, like. And while there's not too much there, perhaps for your key stage one or even lower key stage two, he has a particularly excellent uh, chapter on metaphor and how it is that you might go about introducing and, and teaching metaphor and how uh, you might make sure that students make meaning um, from particular metaphor, which is a really kind of fascinating idea, something that, you know, and it's something that starts to be talked about within year five, year six. So if teachers looking for a really interesting 40 page uh, idea of what a good metaphor is and what good teaching of metaphor looks like yeah I really recommend this book and particularly that chapter on metaphor. Kieran what are you reading for? So I've been reading a really interesting book and it's one that I thought I would one day write but the more I've read it the more I realize I don't need to write the book I thought I wanted to write and it's called Becoming Fluent How Cognitive Science Can Help Adults Learn a Foreign Language and it is brilliant, you know, knowing cognitive science, 
the way we do and having read a lot of the original papers what um it's richard roberts and roger kreutz have done is make cognitive science really accessible to the lay reader and show people how best they can spend their time and how they can overcome all the biases that are working against us as adults when we're trying to learn something that many many people try and fail each year you know learning another language that isn't um, necessarily spoken in the in the area in which we live and uh, yeah i hope that one day i could take all my learn about cognitive science and turn it into a fantastic book but actually i, I realized I don't, I don't need to do that anymore because these guys have done a wonderful job doing that and um, yeah it's, it's really interesting and it's, it's motivating because you know just when you think you're in a in a bit of a habit you know you can get a bump and go oh actually i could try that or i could try this and this is my next step in terms of being the most efficient language learner i can possibly be you know and i think the same applies for teaching and so i think there are a lot of parallels that we could use as well so this week we're going to explore subject knowledge try really hard not to cover all ground because we do quite like to talk about places people should go but i think if we run through lots of the subjects if possibly them all that we expect our pupils to learn about in primary and maybe look at you know places where we can go to find out more you know for instance if you're like me who arrives in england never having studied the tutors but expected to teach year five about the tutors where am i going that kind of situation so i think probably makes sense to start with reading because i'm talking to chris and neil where are you guys going for subject knowledge in terms of reading as you say trying not to cover old ground here so i'm not going to talk about the aspects of reading that relate to how we might teach uh, fluency or this sort of thing but in terms of children's literature and uh, picture books that might inspire writing as well and this sort of thing you'd be hard pushed to find a more comprehensive um, set of resources than simon smith's blogs any time where I'm struggling to find a book to inspire year three, year four, year five, year six, or if a teacher comes to me and says, what kind of book can I use in year one to do X, Y, and Z? I'm often saying, go to Simon Smith blogs. There are a few people who know their way around um, children's literature like he does. So yeah, definitely one to check out there. Yeah, just to add on to that one, I'd like to um, say that um, Duke Skywalker, who's at Carl Duke, Carl Duke 8. He's also another really good person who really knows his way around children's literature, which I'm the first to say is a complete kind of gap in my schema. So as I say, between uh, Simon Smith and Duke Skywalker, he's curated, um, I think, quite a few uh, Google Docs or Google um, slides of books with that link to particular curriculum subject areas they're all free they're all on his twitter and um, i can even see it's one of his um hits his pinned tweets that and it's the hashtag um hashtag curriculum books um it's a wonderful resource and one that whenever i look at texts that might support uh, a particular area of history or geography or whatever it might be that we're looking at it's definitely one that i always go to I think those are really important because we don't have time to read everything we'd like to. And if someone has curated 
I think that that's invaluable because then it allows you to place your trust in someone who has done a lot of the legwork for you. So I think, you know, you, you can't really understate how important that is, particularly, you know, the more time poor a teacher is. I, I reckon probably the further down the list, reading books that you want to cover with your class will, will go. Yeah, one of the great things about the, the blogs in question from Simon Smith uh, are the fact that for each book, there's just a quick summary of what it does, what it includes, what kind of audience it might be suitable for, what children are likely to get from it. It's, yeah, that, those little descriptions is just enough, a um, bit of a teaser for you as a teacher, but enough for you to understand whether this is going to be suitable for your class, whether it is too similar to something you've read before. So, yeah, well worth checking out. So the next one's not so easy because we've spent quite a lot of time talking about it on the podcast. Where are you guys going for your mathematics subject knowledge? So it'd be uh, remiss of me to not mention that one place that is absolutely fantastic for the, the time poor teacher, but to really get a good understanding of subject knowledge, but also some of the underlining principles as to why um, this particular piece of subject knowledge is important is uh, Shannon Doherty's 100 Ideas for Primary Maths Teachers. It's just a fantastic kind of, you know, you can hold it in the palm of your hand, you can carry it around with you in a very, in a, in a backpack quite easily, and you can pick something out of it almost straight away that is going to enhance your own subject knowledge, but equally really show you how you can then make that come alive in the, in the classroom. Bit of an out there suggestion from me. It's one that I hadn't really considered until someone recommended it to me recently. Teacher who I know who struggled with mathematics when they were a trainee, not so much because they'd ever, you know, struggled with it massively in the past, but it'd been a while since they had studied at GCSE and obviously at primary school before that. And they said one of the things they did just to really sharpen their subject knowledge, getting back to where they were, were the use of CGP revision guides for key stage two they just said they went through that check that they could answer every question it just reminded them of how much they did remember and which bits and pieces they didn't so they could dive in a bit further so i actually think from taking that as a recommendation and having had a bit of a flick through one of those revision guides since i do think they're a pretty useful and cheap way to get back into where you're thinking of where you need to be with your subject knowledge We've obviously talked about um, the work of Derek Haylock before. I've got to say it, tackling misconceptions from, or more mackling misconceptions, I prefer. A bit of, sorry, couldn't resist the spoonerism. Obviously, Kieran Mackle's books are superb. Um, I've talked about thinking deeply about primary mathematics quite a lot. And so I think maybe I've not given that one the attention it deserves. So that's certainly one to, to check out. Equally, I think Oak National Academy the videos that are on there are a useful resource for teachers who want things um, explaining for teachers who, you know, maybe, maybe it's just one part of the mathematics curriculum that you're not quite so confident with. It might be equivalent fractions. It might be um, lowest common multiple, whatever it is, you'll be able to find a video on it from an experienced teacher talking it through. So why would you not use that? It's free. It's still there. Yeah. I would check that out for sure. Yeah, there's, there's another one by Derek Kalock as well. It's about misconceptions as well, which clearly isn't as good as uh, you know, Kieran Mackles. But it's, um, I remember it's one of those few, Derek Kalock is one of those few texts that I was recommended, uh, was recommended reading 
uh, while I was in um, training to be a teacher during my three-year BA. And yeah, those two are certainly ones that I still, that have obviously stuck in my mind. So although I've been perhaps a little bit harsh towards my uh, education of training to be a teacher, um, you know, certainly, you know, those two books came into my life at a time perhaps when I probably didn't appreciate it as much as I should have done. Um, but they've obviously made a lasting impact because I can still remember clearly seeing those two on the recommended reading list and reading them as well. You know, I, I, I'm not sure you can say that. <laughs> you know, I think Derek Haylock and it's, it's Ralph Manning, isn't it? The co-author. You know, I think their work's unsurpassed in terms of primary mathematics. And if I can even get anywhere close to sort of their output, then I'll be I'll be happy. And I I think a lot of us being able to inspire wonder and awe in mathematics is finding the awe and wonder ourselves. And there's probably nobody better for doing that for adults than Marcus de Sotoy, who is, you know, he took over from Richard Dawkins as the, oh, the emeritus professor for public science, you know, making science accessible to the public, something along those lines. And he, his two most recent books, and, you know, you're talking four or five years, since the the oldest of them what we cannot know and the creativity code and essentially what he does is he takes his background in mathematics and looks at things like ai you know and in in the creativity code he looks at the story of deep blue and uses those sort of examples to show us what the future might hold you know and in what we cannot know he looks at the, the limitations of science but i think in terms of finding sources of inspiration you can't go far. So I know it's not precisely what we'll teach in primary school, but a lot of the exposition, you know, for instance, in tackling misconceptions, there's talk of the computer that worked out the largest prime number and the fact that there's a million dollar prize for working out the next prime number because of how important it is with cybersecurity, you know, because those long drawn out prime numbers are really, really difficult for computers to cracker you know I don't completely understand but I know it took many many hours and in the old days they used to put many computers together you know as many as 50 computers hooked up together running these numbers for ages and ages and ages and you know I, I love that kind of stuff and I love bringing it into the classroom because then when our, our pupils ask well why do we need to know about prime numbers well there's reason number one you know it, it will ensure that your your financial security you know remains such <laughs> and so I'm definitely going to mark us to so tight for anything in terms of uh, in, in terms of awe and wonder in mathematics. What about grammar? Where would you go to, Chris? I've always been a bit of a fan of Strunk and White's The Elements of Style. I know it's a bit dated, and I know that some of the advice in there is, you know, just old-fashioned, frankly. But ever since my secondary English teacher told me that I used 50 words when five would do I've been trying my best to be succinct in writing and nothing supported me in that as much as strunk and white but beyond that beyond its good advice about writing it also has some really sensible understandable rules for dealing with things like comma splices semicolons again the advice in a lot of cases is stated as if it's this is definitely the way it is whereas in some cases is actually just a stylistic preference. But mostly you're on really solid ground with the advice it gives on uh, grammar. In terms of the grammatical terminology, 
that we need to understand in school. There's also a book, I think called The Grammar Book by Zoe and Timothy Paramore. I've not read it myself, but I've seen it recommended by people that I trust. Um, so that's almost certainly one to check out. And perhaps a little bit of a left field suggestion here. Often when I've been on Google or YouTube and I'm looking for decent explanations for things like the past progressive or whatever it might be, I often end up with uh, videos that if I look at down at the bottom where it says the title, they're actually by the British Council and they're meant for people who are learning English, say, as a second language. A lot of those resources are really carefully thought through, really carefully structured and really succinctly explained. So I would may maybe check out the free courses that um, you can do online through the British Council relating to, I think they're actually divided up into like grammar, vocabulary, etc. So yeah, definitely give them a look. I've just got two to add and they're both they're both part of a DK series. There's English for Everyone, the English Grammar Guide, which is a, a comprehensive visual reference guide just to different particular uh, aspects of grammar, which um, I found particularly useful. All very clear, succinct, no jargon bar the actual grammatical terms that are used, clear diagrams that teachers could easily uh, take a picture of on their phone, um, crop it, send it to themselves uh, using a grammar lesson, or if you buy the uh, ebook, uh, just potentially copyright law prevailing uh, snippet and put it in a uh, presentation and obviously, you know, referencing where, where appropriate. Um, and then linked to that one then is the visual guide to grammar and punctuation. This one is kind of more based towards children itself but it's something that is still effective I think for teachers to dip in and out of just to kind of really see you know, it goes from the building blocks of what a sentence is it looks at a whole range of different ideas from the difference between a, a collective noun and a, a proper noun it goes through what some common misconceptions uh, that children might make when it comes to grammar so things like using the wrong kind of there or using um, is and are incorrectly when talk, talking about singular or plural so those are great books that if you're time poor and you just really want to have a, a, a visual reference guide with you I think they are particularly uh, strong contenders to be in every classroom. For grammar for me I'm going to recommend something the first of a few I don't know, people who've listened to many of the episodes may have heard me talking about how I use Audible and I'm quite fond of listening to audiobooks, you know, 1.5 speed. And what I do to get the most of my Audible subscription, and I'm not sponsored by them or anything, is I will use a thing called The Great Courses. And essentially, it's this old, I think some of them are quite modern. So it's been going for a long time, though set of you know it, it says the best classrooms in the in the world so you go you go like harvard or mit for your your science lessons and, and basically they'll take you through a course that some university lecturer has put on and there's a guy called john mcforder who actually in his courses talks about strong and white and the conversation 
that is taking place as to as to proper use of language. And the one for this is it's called Myths and Lies and Half Truths of Language Usage. And basically, he spends 30 hours or 20 hours if you're on 1.5-ish speed talking about the history of language usage and the proprieties of language usage as we, you know, as we see them now in the in the 21st century. And yeah, so for, for someone like me who doesn't necessarily have the time to dedicate reading time to English and the teaching of English, you know, I'll stick that on the car when there's no one else in it, or I'll use it as I'm walking between my schools and you know, get through a course a week sometimes. And yeah, so I'm, I'm gonna signpost a few of my favorites, but it's the it's called the great courses. And I think you can subscribe from them themselves but a lot of their things are already on Audible and, you know, seven ninety nine a month for 30 odd hours of, uh, of content, you know, I think is decent, but like I said, not sponsored by the great courses. A couple of other things for those of you interested in getting into language and perhaps doing some writing of your own. And you're the sort, like me, you find yourself worrying whether a given word is not just grammatically correct, or whether, but whether it you know has the meaning you want it to have. If you're the person who gets complement mixed up with compliment or tenet and tenant, those two are very common. I'd recommend both uh, the Reader's Digest, The Right Word at the Right Time, which is actually just a really interesting read. It's one of these ones, it's set up A to Z. You can just plow through it and realize how little you know about the language and how interesting the language is. Um, also, Fowler's uh, Modern English Usage is a really handy reference guide. Um, I find that has helped me countless times when I'm trying to sharpen up on my writing. And I've no doubt that it would actually be a pretty useful resource generally for um, primary teachers. So what about history then? Where are you going to, Neil, whenever you want to develop your history subject knowledge? So obviously it depends what area of history that you're particularly uh, interested in, that you're looking at. Um, for British history, which a large chunk of the national curriculum is, I really enjoy a YouTube channel called 10 Minute Histories, and it does exactly what it says in the book. It takes you from pretty much the arrival of the Romans up into the modern day in kind of 10 minute chunks. I remember spending a large proportion of lockdown um, quite happily watching those with particularly silly animations. Um, you probably goes at a pace that's probably too fast to actually watch them with the children, but they are kind of a fantastic way to just kind of get a succinct idea. So as you mentioned, if you, where do I start with the Tudors if your curriculum isn't uh, explicit enough in what you should teach, then certainly, you know, finding uh, 1485 and the, the Battle of Bosworth is, and following that on for a couple of episodes is a great place to start. If you're, have some sort of um, Apple device because I'm not sure if it's there on Android. There is an author called Henry Freeman and he has some free books on various aspects of history that coincidentally fall into certain aspects of the national curriculum as well. So there's a really, really good one on the Maya. There's a really, really, there's another exceptional one on the Sumeria. They're only probably about 50 pages in length so really short really succinct and they're free as well and yeah there's plenty of for the subject for the amount of knowledge that a primary school teacher would be looking for I think they hit the nail on the head pretty well to be honest I think one of the hardest parts of 
teaching history as a primary teacher is how how helpful it is and yet how difficult it is to have an overview of history itself i mean that's a difficult thing for anyone never mind a primary teacher and any text that that attempts to give a, an overview of world history is inevitably going to have biases and weaknesses and yet i think it's still valuable to um, read a text or two that attempt to do that one of the most accessible texts that does that one admittedly with a european focus is um, a little history of the world by eh gombrich it's a classic and by that i mean it's wonderful but dated alongside that i i think uh, the cheat sheets that are available on michael tidd's blog are really useful for aspects of the national curriculum that with which teachers might not be particularly familiar and i guess obvious recommendation but the history association is a fine place to start assuming your school subscribes to it and if they don't perhaps try consider trying to convince your school to do so because it isn't particularly expensive and there are some really good um, bits and pieces on there just uh, one more to add in there very quickly dk as well who i promise aren't sponsored from this episode but they do have a wealth of great books another one they have is it's just called the history book and that literally tracks small bite-sized bits of history from human origins and that goes all the way up to um again the the modern world as well it's about 352 pages but it's well indexed so again you can find something about everything in there as well and it's beautifully uh, illustrated as well one to have in the classroom as well making references to it all the time to really kind of encourage this is something that perhaps some children might want to pick up and almost start reading themselves as well yeah it, it should probably go without saying that we're not sponsored by anybody you know because they'd be expecting a certain level of production quality i imagine if we were <laughs> you know history is one that i've got lots written down for and um, podcasts neil you've recommended most of them to me i think fall of civilizations you know i put those on as i'm going to sleep I set a 30 minute timer so I know where the last sort of ish bit I've gotten to was, you know, the short histories. And they've now got a daily thing called History Daily, um, where they talk about what happened in history on that day. You know, it's only a little 15 minute bite, but, it, you know, it's really interesting as well. Great courses. The most recent one was the, the Vikings, you know, and it didn't just look at Viking. It looked at Scandinavian peoples between that 300, 400 year period, you know, right down to the, the time of the Normans and the Rus and how basically they shaped our lives. And I think Anglo-Saxon history, you know, was shaped immeasurably by that particular period, you know, and, and to be honest, the modern day as well. Anything by Ian Kershaw on World War II, you know, there's the end, um, Hitler's Germany, and then he's done a two-volume sort of biography of, of Hitler himself, you know, which might not have too many pieces that are directly applicable. But I think the bigger our picture of that period of history, the better. And, and then this bit's probably the best thing I'll say all night. When I'm looking for really interesting texts um, with a subject specialist focus, I will type in the name of a university, the subject, and the word reading list. So for instance, tonight, I wrote in History of the British Isles reading list, Oxford, and I got Balliol College's list, and they go for everything from 300 
to 1500. And so I can literally go, okay, here's what people who are studying this course at Balliol College are, are engaging with. And then I can choose the bits that stand out to me, you know, so they've got, they've got website links. I think I'll, I'll try and put some of these in the show notes, but like there's one that really stood out to me. And um, was it the stripping of the altars, traditional religion in England, 1400 to 1580. And that's a book from 1992 by E. Duffy. And so I'm, I'm going I'm to read that because that looks interesting. And, you know, you can almost trust in the level because it's been, it's on the recommended or essential reading list of the university. On the subject of podcasts to add to that, if I, didn't hear them. Uh, You're Dead to Me often has elements of the primary curriculum on them. A uh, really interesting one all about uh, Mary Seacole, uh, who quite commonly gets put into the key stage one curriculum when looking at significant figures. Uh, really excellent. Uh, there's a uh, Greg Jenner, who is the historian behind, the public historian behind uh, horrible histories. He's joined with an expert historian uh, and a comedian as well, that probably about 30, 40 minutes on average. So there's always something interesting. It's always a bit of a, a laugh running joke. And what I really appreciate about it is that it's almost done in almost like a game show format. So at the end, there is um, a quiz, a 10 question quiz. So you can almost use that as a cheeky bit of retrieval practice for yourself if you're you know, taking it in to actually learn from it. So fully recommend that one, along with um, History Extra, everything and anything. There's 14 years of back catalogue on History Extra about everything that you will ever need to know. So History Extra and uh, an ancient civilization, History Extra, Anglo-Saxons, whatever it might be, you'll find something there for sure. I'm really pleased you mentioned that because I will often go there first to the you know you're dead to me uh, get like a, a base level and then go to other sources after it and also peter frankopan is quite often one of the guests you know he'd be the historian and you know obviously he wrote the silk roads there's another silk roads book that he's just released and anything he sort of produces i try to eat up as much as possible because he's got this really interesting take on on history and uh, yeah he, yeah like i say i think he did um I don't know if it was the Assyrians, but he was definitely there with them, with Boudicca, um, I think. And yeah, always really interesting to listen to. I guess while we're just thinking about that as well, um, depending on where you are in your kind of curriculum journey, if you're looking for a, a text, if you're studying different civilizations and you're thinking, right, okay, so now where are some real kind of coherent you know, links and golden threads that I can kind of weave into this so they can you know, really kind of see that history isn't just static units of certain periods but you know there is a coherent narrative between them then I do recommend reading the book of knowledge as well which I know is a, a firm favorite on the uh, podcast um, which really kind of fantastic book that traces uh, the origins of some uh, particular um, ancient texts but through that you get to learn about um, the golden age of Islam and Baghdad you get to learn about um, the importance of um, Alexander, the, the library at Alexandra, so looking at that, the latter end of the Egyptian empire. So it's just a really kind of nice book that you can use to add a few cohesive ties to. But I appreciate that uh, later down when you're really kind of thinking about how can I really kind of improve this curriculum once you have a solid foundation. Yeah, I, I felt I understood world history so much more having read that book. So that, that would have been about Christmas last year, Christmas 2020. 
you recommended that book yeah awesome awesome recommendation yeah i think that's uh i think as chris was saying it's difficult to get kind of an overview and i think those kinds of books are actually the the one way that you can really get that way instead of just focusing on one particular period in depth you're actually tracing something over time really kind of gets you to see how everything you know, all links up and you know cause and effects to your heart's content with pretty much every event that has ever happened throughout world history so the, the, the next one might be a bit tricky what about geography where are we going for that just going to recommend one resource might seem a little bit out there there don't i'm sure you well there's a good chance you'll already be familiar with a youtube channel called crash course uh by the vlog brothers one of them it wrote um a book called um the fault in their stars um interesting chat multi-talented pair but they're um one of the things that they released about a decade ago i think it's about 10 years old is a a show, a YouTube show called uh, Crash Course that has released title after title after title, series after series. And I think in the last 12 months or so, one that's been released is Geography, an introduction to geography. And it is typically accessible, engaging and detailed and nuanced. Really, really um, interesting series. You, because they're in 10 minute bites, you end up just watching one and then another one and then another one. And it, you feel like, oh, well, that was very, that was very easily done. And then you look back and you realize that you've been through a, you know, a six hour lecture series effectively on the subject of geography, what it is, how it relates to other subjects, um, the difference between place and space. It's yeah, it's a terrific. If you only watch one episode, watch the first, just as a real to get a grasp of what geography is, what it isn't as well. It's yeah, highly recommended. It's a cracking little series. There's loads. Of, I mean, I could mention Crash Course for lots of the stuff we've talked about already. There's a, currently a series on Black American history, which is absolutely terrific. There are multiple courses on there that I'd recommend. So, yeah, Crash Course Geography. That's my the one thing I'm going to mention for geography. Nice. Uh, likewise, I only just have uh, one, but it's some of its parts, and that's the In the Know series from the Geography Association. There are 10 of them all together, but you can buy them. I think it's something like they retail at about $6.99 each if you're not a member. But if you are a member of the Geography Association, I think you can get all 10 for something about £20. And it just takes a few of those kind of highbrow curriculum objectives and just kind of breaks it down very methodically as to what this actually looks like, breaks down the key terminology what I particularly like about it is that it just, if it was a document that you downloaded, put on your shared area and just said, you know, these are our geographical definitions. I think that would do a lot of good for geography curriculum because whenever you go to, whenever climate zones come up, whichever website you go to, they always name them some ever so slightly different. Whereas this just ensures that there is a clear kind of consistency as to what these definitions are and this is the language that we're going to be using in uh in the curriculum that the children are going to have going forward so they have one on climate biomes and vegetation belts they've got one on earthquakes and tsunamis they have one on um, energy another on grid grid references and map symbols one on latitude longitude night and day 
mountains and volcanoes. So all of the kind of like classic ones, but also uh, resources. There's that particularly nasty objective in the national curriculum about land use and different resources. So this kind of really kind of breaks it down at a level that is understandable to every primary school teacher, I'm sure. Some great uh, graphics, which I've used to incorporate into our curriculum as well, definitely worth the uh, the investment, the £20. Yeah, for, for geography, you know, it's well outside my remit, but I play a game called GeoGuessr, and essentially it's built, it's got um, Google Maps or Google Earth built into it, and it plunks you somewhere in the world, and you have to identify on the on the two-dimensional map where you are, you know, and there are people on YouTube who can guess in milliseconds without moving, you know, sometimes you'll be in like a, a desert, and these people know exactly where they are in the world, but in terms of, you know, a fun way to familiarize yourself with different parts of the world, you know, I think, you know, and you know, countries the size of China, understanding where the different parts of China that we might be talking to pupils about in relation to the distance, you know, where the Great Wall of China is. My, whenever I had to guess where that was and the reality, I think I was thousands of miles away. And, and so, you know, it, it, you're not studying, you're just playing a game. And I think it's on phone. I use the, the web browser because it's just a bit better in terms of functionality. But yeah, but you, you can't beat it for, uh, you know, an enjoyable way to familiarize yourself with locations across the world. So then science, Chris, where do you, you know, obviously as a, as a student of science, you know, perhaps, a, you know, I don't know what's, what's the word, a disciple of, of the scientific, <laughs> where, where are you going to top up your immense subject knowledge? My science background is a long time ago. It's a long time since I uh, did that chemistry degree. But all the more reason for me to go back and grasp the basics. I'm a big fan of a book called Teaching Primary Science by Peter Riley. It just spells out the absolute basics of the national curriculum, topic by topic. And go, it goes a bit beyond the national curriculum as well, which is ideal. But it's accessible isn't intimidating in the slightest that's my kind of kind of go-to resource i would say for science there are obviously all sorts of other places i've mentioned like veritasium and this sort of stuff there are all sorts of places on youtube where you can find the things that go far beyond uh, your study like things like i mean again for a lot of the things we've mentioned in the podcast so far podca- um, like in our time is a great example of that but obviously that's going beyond what we need to know for primary science but for the core of what you do need to know as i say peter riley's teaching primary science is a really good place to start nice i have uh, two books that i kind of go to the first is uh, michael allen's uh, misconceptions in primary science uh, for me personally i have to look past a little bit of the the pedagogy he does have a an outline of the kind of the pedagogy that uh, he uh, advocates which you kind of have to unless that's uh, the pedagogy that you choose to go down to a course but for me it's not one that I w- do want to go to but in terms of the actual misconceptions that students might have um, that's a particularly good one and I really enjoy and I think I remember I think it was Lil Okers who recommended this one on Twitter which is the really useful science book a framework of knowledge for primary teachers and that's by Steve Farrow uh, 
it's quite a, an old text, but obviously, you know, science has moved on. This was first published in 1996. And in fact, the copy that I have was a secondhand copy and uh, a Wendy Smith did her PGCE in 1997 and 1998, as uh, it's mentioned there in the, the first book. So if there is a Wendy Smith out there, uh, who did their PGC in 1997 and 1998. Uh, yeah, I, I have your book, so thank you very much. But for primary science, it just breaks down everything that you need to know effectively about the science and subject knowledge that anyone will ever need as well. Again, some useful diagrams, which would always be useful for teaching as well. So yeah, really recommend that one. It does go beyond the primary element, which I think is no bad thing but definitely uh, everything that you need there in one book. I think mine are probably more subject specific. I mean, Brian Cox has a book on the planets. I find it really comprehensive and, and, and interesting at the same time. It's almost one of those ones that you know, bridges popularity and, and science at the same time. And then there are a few great courses. The one called The Mysteries of Modern Science um, or Mysteries of Modern Physics, Time. And I know that we don't go in too much into time, but in terms of my understanding of, you know, physics and particularly quantum physics, I just find it really interesting. I think, you know, it's one of those things that if we understand it a little bit more, it feeds into our understanding of, of physics that we teach it, you know, the primary phase. And then the, the theory of evolution, a history of controversy, which is almost like a scientifically historical account you know, going from Lamarckianism towards neo-Darwinism and where we are today in terms of high evolution has been sort of refined over time and, and the controversies that came with that, particularly in, you know, Southern America in the early 20th century. And I think, yeah, you know, that features quite prominently, if not statutorily in year six-ish. And so I think it's definitely somewhere that I would recommend people go because the, the better, you know, it doesn't go into the same depths that, for instance, Richard Dawkins might do in The Selfish Gene, but it definitely touches on it. And so it allows us to build up this idea of the distinction between how people thought in the 19th century, you know, before Darwin sort of finally published his work and our understanding of um, evolution now, because I know that, you know, I think it's adaptation that normally comes under the title of, but I think the more we know that it's a little bit more than that, I think the, the better, you know, so definitely, you know, thoroughly enjoyable, you know, so those are two great courses and then one book that I would, but science is one of those things that I, I want to learn as much about as possible. So I'm going on YouTube and watching videos with specific titles. Just to add on to the uh, courses, uh, Reach Out CPD is another really uh, good one for time poor teachers. It's been developed uh, with Imperial College London and the, the wonderful Robert Winston, and it just has 30 courses designed for five to 11 year olds mapped out to the national curriculum that take about 20 minutes to do very short very concise always one to look at in the half term before you're about to come up and teach something very easy very digestible and free as well all you need is a is an email and i fully recommend that uh, your science lead at least makes a uh, an account for this uh, particular website one more i forgot to mention cracking book Short, a short history of nearly anything. Sorry, of nearly everything by Bill Bryson. Lovely way to remind yourself about how wonderful science is. 
alongside that there's a I think I might have mentioned it on the podcast before so apologies for the repetition if I have kids version a short uh, sorry a really short history of nearly everything which is a picture book version that just obviously breaks it down into its basics is one that has been well received by young family members and uh, the children of friends so that's one to check out as well if we're talking science picture books there's a book called how the bork was made i think you know i'll put it in the, i'll put it underneath the, the tweet but essentially it's like um there's these imaginary animals and all the animals that blended into the environment didn't get eaten so all the animals started blending into the environment all the, all the short animals didn't get eaten and, and so on and so on you know we, we've had a lot of fun at home looking at that uh, you know but i think there's lots of lots of science you know just as many as there are maths books that you can sort of helps maybe in, in fact it'd be worth looking at those for for future episodes and then we're on to music where are you going to neil i think music is uh, quite a tricky one but certainly for the element of the music curriculum that requires us to teach students uh, basic notation for me you can't go far wrong with the newly introduced ABRSM uh, Discover Music Theory books. You'd only need to buy grade one or grade two. They're workbooks effectively. So the idea is that you would actually have these if you were practicing to do your music theory exams. But in just in terms of that real kind of basic understanding of how music theory works and understanding notation and what the various symbols in music notation are called, yeah, I think it's a, a solid one to, to go to. Uh, also fully recommend that teachers read the annexes and appendices of the model music curriculum. Uh, really interesting detail and breakdown about the various um, periods of uh, music that are in, you are encouraged to listen to when you are in, when you, if you're using the model curriculum, as well as some greater kind of background information regarding various uh, composers and musical genre that um, that model curriculum covers. Fully recommend giving those a read as well. And if you want to go one step further, um, and again, to sign up and something you could use in assemblies perhaps, but for your own subject knowledge is um, Classical 100, which is also by the ABRSM. It gives you not the top 100 classical songs ever but it gives you 100 classical songs that, that you can listen to you can organize through the related dynamics of music you could listen to it through um, a, a storytelling sequence but it gives you uh, quite a bit of detail about the composer when the music was made um, you know the reception that the piece of music had etc cetera, etc cetera. so uh, those are my kind of three that I'd go to can't say I've got anything um, hugely impressive to add to that. The one thing I'd note is that if you are a school leader listening to this, it's very tempting when you're filling up your school CPD library to think about the pedagogy side of things. But actually, a lot I think a lot of the resources that we've recommended or that have already been recommended here could be well well placed in a school CPD library, not just for you know the subject leaders but obviously the classroom teachers who may need just that little bit of support with their subject knowledge so that's something to bear in mind. I've got three courses from the great courses and I think this might have been how I got into the great courses because I remember having a conversation with a friend 
and I was saying about how I just didn't understand jazz. I was like, you know, th this isn't music. I don't, I don't understand. They're just, they're just doing this for the sake of doing this. And he said, no, no, there's a course called Elements of Jazz from Cakewalks to Fusion. He's all, listen to this and then come back to me and we can talk more about this because um, you're woefully ill-informed as, as it stands. And he wasn't prepared to have a conversation with me. And so then I looked at that and there was one called um, How to Listen to and Understand Classical Music. And so I think I, I went through those in a month, the two of them. And I had an appreciation for those two forms of music beyond what I'd had before, because I was looking at things that, you know, they were signposting and then realizing what was happening. And so, it, you know, I don't know how deep we go in music, but I think understanding the decisions of people like Beethoven, Mozart, you know, really helps to understand what we're trying to achieve with them, um, you know, like, like musical notation and, and things like genre and form and tone, you know, all the sort of all the different things we teach, you know, and then there's one called Concert Masterworks, if you want to go even further, where he basically picks out five like symphonies or concertos and talks about why they were so important. So like Neil was saying, you know, how it was received at the time, you know, and how this sort of challenged what we thought, you know, the, the things that come to mind are the fact that, um, you know, there wasn't much time, relatively speaking, between Beethoven and Mozart, but the advent of the piano made what was possible much different, you know, later in the in the 19th century than it was, you know, towards the end of the 18th century. And hopefully I'm getting those dates right. But yeah, but, um, you know, so like I said, I don't, I don't teach music. You know, I don't think I really taught music properly, despite knowing how to play a couple of instruments, you know, when I was teaching, you know, the full complement. But um, it's something that I always try to, you know, since that conversation with my friend where he said, you need to improve your knowledge before we can have a proper conversation. Um, but actually, it's helped me help others with their music curriculum ambitions because I've got that sort of background knowledge on, on the decision and the reasons why people might make the, the decisions they make. So th those three courses, I don't think I can state enough how useful they might be. Just one more to add, which just come to to memory there is the the bbc 10 pieces website there are again the the same ideas already mentioned they've gathered um, various pieces of music i think there's actually more than 10 now but when you click on them there are resources that accompany each resource you get information uh, about these so i'm looking at um sibelius with the uh, finlandia right now so you get some detail about why sibelius composed this piece of music a bit of uh, background information about Sibelius himself, but as well as uh, various resources to go along with that. So it's one step further than just uh, subject knowledge, but also a, a nice free resource there as well with the subject knowledge built into it. What about RE? So this goes back to a previous guest, uh, Adam Smith, who recommended a, a little history of religion, which was a fascinating little read um, regarding all various world religions wonderful book fully recommend it as a kind of go-to get a broad understanding of how the different religions uh, have appeared and how they've developed over time but i also feel that i also think that another particularly useful subject uh, document is the 
living difference four which is an agreed syllabus for hampshire the isle of wight portsmouth and southampton but it is free and if you're looking to really kind of understand sort of the, what those bigger concepts within our, the different religions might be um this is your go-to one they provide very brief breakdowns on things on what the buddhist traditions are the christian uh, traditions are the baha'i traditions the sikhs so all those kind of main religions they break it down quite uh, neatly and i think as far as a locally agreed syllabus in terms of re if you're a uh, local authority school then you have to teach your uh, the locally agreed syllabus uh, the living difference is one of the better ones that I've come across and is definitely worth any RE leader uh, sinking their teeth into in my uh, giving this is my limited uh, knowledge and expertise in leading creating any RE curricula it seems to be uh, particularly useful for the novice RE leader which I definitely consider myself yeah I just echo what Neil says in particular about um little history of religion surprised at how accessible that is i mean it's it's 200 pages but the way it's set out it actually works out a kind of two hour read at most and it's one that's it's one of these rare books where when it comes to subject knowledge you can you get about 20 pages in and you think oh actually i'm not really reading this just for subject knowledge this is just a really entertaining book yeah i mean even if you're never going to teach re again check it out it's it's a lovely little book no one captured the zeitgeist because whenever Adam and his episode went live, the number of people who were either tweeting me about that book or had mentioned to me off the cuff, you know, oh yeah, I read that little little history of religion. Yeah, it was was phenomenal. So I think you know it it speaks to how much that captured people's imaginations and you know the, the job it can do. And then I think we're on to languages, you know. One of those ones that, uh, you know, it's in the national curriculum, but many of us aren't necessarily equipped to deliver the lofty ambitions. How do we get better? You know, where, what do we read or what do we listen to to get better at, uh, to improve our subject knowledge from the first place and then get better at teaching languages as a result? In terms of French, I'd recommend uh, Rachel Hawkes. That's H-A-W-K-E-S. Um, there's a a course that runs from kind of year three, four, five, six, if you choose to follow it that way. It's uh, basic enough for me to get on board with it. So that's um, fantastic. Again, treading old ground almost here, but I went back to uh, another CGP revision guide. Again, very helpful. CGP, GCSE French, first half of one of those. If you studied French, it's going to be really useful as a little reminder. Yes, it will go beyond what you're expected in terms of you know past perfect tense etc in what you're going to be teaching at primary level but if you have some understanding of a language from GCSE and you want just to remind yourself of it do find revision guides are really useful for this not too much to offer here but I know my preference and I'm sure it's uh, I've mentioned it on the podcast before is for um, Latin and so whilst I wouldn't necessarily recommend that you teach Latin without having some form of training, there is kind of um, plenty of free resources there from the Maximum Classics, which is part of the Classics for All project, which 
provides free lessons for um, key stage two, which is easily enough for people to get their um, head around. Possible to take it as an off-the-shelf uh, scheme of work. Um, as I say, it's all there. It's all comprehensive. Definitely, one I'd want to have some CPD from someone who can, you know, speak Latin before I'd personally want it delivered. But it is an option out there if that's the route that some uh, schools wish to go to. I think lots of people bemoan the way they were taught languages at school, but if we have any hope of changing that perceived experience, because it's not it's not for me to comment on the actual quality of language instruction in secondary schools, because my only experience is as a student, and I wasn't a very diligent student during that uh, during that period. You know, I remember doing my GCSE in in Irish, and you know, having covered the Irish when I was younger, sort of switched off. And so, you know, I, I can't really speak with any great confidence on, on what it's like. But I think the better we know a language, the better equipped we are to instruct others in it. And, you know, and, and part of me thinks, well, if I am expected to be the subject leader, is it fair for me to ask my school to pay for languages? Because I do think if you want to learn a language, the most efficient way to do it is through instruction from an expert. But there are places that I go, you know, going full circle. We haven't been full circle for a while. Back to my what you're reading for recommendation. You know, when I think about my methodology and the resources I use, I'd probably start with something. There's an app called Language Transfer, and it's very much a passive listen, take on board. And I think they have eight languages at the minute, but you, you literally just listen to maybe 10 minutes. And this guy sort of tries to convince you in that Michelle Thomas kind of way that you already understand the language. You know, you just didn't realize you understood the language. You know, I'm not saying there's any efficacy in that method, but as a primer, that's where I go first. And you got people like Benny Lewis who have the, he's got his language hacking sort of series of books. And he's definitely got Spanish, French, and German, and he might have an Italian one as well. And essentially, I reckon if you were to complete that course, because it's audio and book, you'd probably have the standard we're expecting 11-year-olds to leave primary school with. You know, for me, language learning is about little and often, you know, 15 minutes a day within a year, you could probably get to the end of, you know, year six level, you know, within three years, you could probably be reasonably conversationally fluent. Um, and then I'd use things like Memrise, which is basically a flashcard software that has AI that works out the distance that you need to revise, you know, the sort of key vocabulary, and then finish with something like Link, which is L-I-N, G and then a capital Q. And essentially that's when you get to the phase where you're reading for vocabulary acquisition and you can highlight the words that you recognize that you don't recognize and then it builds it into some flashcard software too. Yeah, so, you know, maybe it's a pipe dream, but I do think 15 minutes a day, everyone could try, you know, subject leaders. I don't know, I don't know where I'm going with this really, but I really enjoy <laughs> spending my time this way. And I think it's, you know, if we're realistic in terms of the fact that, okay, I've got four years to learn this language, I'm going to do 10 minutes a day. I think that's manageable and it puts us in a better position to teach our children too. I don't know, unless you've chosen Mandarin as your modern foreign language, in which case, good luck and per perhaps close to 10 minutes a day for 25 years, I think. <laughs> Art and design, Chris, what do you reckon? For art stuff, I'm going to say one thing that's quite sensible, I think, and one thing that's maybe not so sensible. Uh, the first, the sensible one is the aptly titled The Art Book, 
by I think the publisher is Faden, P-H-A-I-D-O-N. Really lovely overview of history of art, movements, artists, etc. It's one of these um, coffee table books that's just lovely to to deal with. You can get like a full scale version, but there's also a um, uh, like a mini version, which is fantastic for CPD library. Again, bit of an out there recommendation. If you don't live near London, the next time you happen to be there, go to the National Gallery. If if art isn't your thing, put on some music, put your headphones in, and then just let yourself wonder and just say to yourself, I'm only going to stop and have a look at anything that just happens to catch my eye and interest me. But once I've made the decision, I'm going to stop and look at it for a full minute. Don't try and look at everything. I've, I've never had any real joy in an art gallery that way. That's not what it's for, I think. But let yourself wonder, let yourself be drawn into particular things. Let yourself just luxuriate in the idea of going, actually, this picture for some unknown reason, completely inexplicable reason, right now on this day, catches my eye, interests me more than the ones that are around it. And have a go at just appreciating um, some art. So that would be something I would recommend because it's something that I was never into. And then based on some recommendations from a friend, it became something that I did actually quite enjoy and found really, really relaxing. So something to consider there, two different directions. With regards to the design, sort of what I'm saying, so kind of DT, I'll just quickly mention, if your school doesn't already subscribe to the uh, data so the dnt association that's probably a sensible idea um at some point your school may have bought the projects on a page stuff those resources are really useful to just have a look at if you want to see the breadth of um school dt but yeah so dt art that kind of stuff that those are the places i'd go yeah far from my area of expertise uh, and i'm definitely kind of still in that uh, stage uh, that christopher said where i find it difficult to be moved by pieces of art it has happened a few times but it is something i consciously aware of uh, i want to get better at in terms of where teachers can go there is a uh, a series it's called the, the 13 series that takes you through uh, various different aspects of art so there's a book called 13 art movements children should know there's 13 painters children should know that 13 paintings children should know 13 sculptures children should know 13 art illusions children should know there's lots of lots of these um in this kind of series i know i've looked at a few of them before when i was looking at um an art curriculum uh, previously in a previous role as a kind of i don't know where to start i think they're a very good place but as i say it's predominantly just a, an initial starting point I think as Chris said you need to look at something go to these places and really kind of experience it before you can truly kind of appreciate all of it but I think it's uh, an excellent starting point with regards to DT um, I agree for subject knowledge the uh, DT association is also great but I will just put out a quick shout out for a blog that Aidan Severs did all about the process of what um, as in the process is that a designer would go through. So when you're kind of thinking about 
those that sequence of lessons in DT. Uh, it's a really kind of useful blog to really kind of think about that disciplinary aspect rather to ensure that what we're teaching is actual DT, not just children with some with a glue gun and a, a couple of you know cereal boxes and sticking something together and calling it DT. So it's funny you should mention going to London because I think particularly in America, a lot of the art galleries will have virtual tours. And I don't know if they started because of the pandemic or if that was something they did to bring things to a wider audience in general, but I, I'm almost convinced the Met has a virtual exhibition where you can go through and you can look at things. Tate has really good information. You know, like for instance, I know they've got some Picasso works, you know, per perhaps even, you know, what's the name of the painting with the lady with the sideways face? <laughs> love to google that one and see what comes up <laughs> the name of the painting with the lady with the sideways face i mean knowing picasso it's like which painting of the lady with the sideways <laughs> face you type that into google you get about 50 i, I know the one you mean because i studied it with the, with the tears and the yeah I'm... yeah I, th I think they've got they've got her and you know i'm gonna have to use the qi pronunciation but they've also got um like a a biography of Vincent van Gogh <laughs> or something along those lines. And, you know, it explains his career, his life, you know, his lack of success during most of his lifetime and, and then and his artistic style. So if you're looking for background knowledge, you know, I, I think, you know, at some point between year one and year six, you're going to encounter his work. And, you know, I would, I would check out art gallery websites and see what they've got to offer. Most artists also, you know, I was looking at them, um, Juan Miro, all his stuff on his website, you know, information about when, why, different phases, you know, the same can be said for Kandinsky, you know, you're going to find, you're going to find the, the information's out there. I would just keyword search the artist's name and the first couple of hits are going to be their websites, galleries that house their work and their websites and the information. And I think sometimes you just put the word kids after and you get things that have been designed with children especially in mind you know but like you say I think appreciating art you know and, and certainly I've, I've always been moved whenever Chris has shared the work of Goya with us you know maybe not in the in the most positive way but it's it's certainly moving <laughs> and uh, yeah I think it comes from you know looking at small pieces and and asking yourself what do you take and then appreciating the, the skill it would have taken to get to that stage I think when it comes to like being in a gallery, for me, it grow like an appreciation of art for me grows from an initial um, question that you ask yourself. It, even if you're not interested at all, and you look at two paintings and you like, or two sculptures or whatever it might be, and you go, if you were forced to pick one, why do you prefer that one? Why does that one just meet your eye better? Because quite often you'll go, well, actually, yeah, I, I do like that one more i don't know why if i had to have one in my house or if i had to look at one for a while i'd rather look at that one and quite often if that someone then follows that up with a question of oh why you can't put your finger on it there's no like there's there's it's in it's ineffable and yet it exists something within you allows you this kind of aesthetic judgment between the two and you don't know where it comes from it comes from a completely irrational place or arguably a rational place and letting that ferment 
somewhat in a gallery and letting that just grow from there is a really enjoyable um, experience, particularly because I find it, it disconnects me from the rational side of me that tends to be a bit overbearing at points. So I suppose now is probably the best time to introduce our new podcast, Thinking Deeply About Post-War Impressionist Art, featuring Chris and Neil. <laughs> Not sure about post-war, but I do know, uh, I did particularly enjoy, um, I think it must have been one of the first lockdowns of one of our um, early uh, quizzes that we did. I think, Chris, you introduced the uh, Turner's The Slave Ship Um massive fan of that bit of art and that is one of those rare pieces where and I think funny enough it's the more I know about the painting the more interested in the painting I am so if you hadn't given that little bit of you know it was only a couple of sentences that little bit of background knowledge about what this painting was I would have, would have been like yeah I can appreciate the you know that bit of uh, background knowledge that you gave and it just really made me be like yeah that's actually pretty fantastic yeah, and, and makes you realise that, well, actually, that's quite a disturbing image for, for like a for a for a living room safe. Just I have to say, because you've mentioned Turner, he's his work was the reason why I, I think I actually begun to began to be interested in art. And it's the reason I mentioned the National Gallery in particular, because I just happened to notice his particular what can only be described as impressionistic style. And I, I recognize, I, I, he, his was the first work that I could go, oh, well, yeah, that's obviously a Turner. That's obviously a Turner. And uh, yeah, the first artist where I just thought, oh, I just seem to like all of his work and I've no idea why. And exploring that idea was a lot of fun. I think they're nice links to make uh, across the curriculum as well. But um, certainly when we look at volcanoes, when we look at uh, the Romans, we always go to Turner's uh, eruption of Vesuvius as well. That's a uh, a, a cork of a picture if you're an art coordinator primary secondary and you haven't got a fairly major focus on turner this is just my bias it's like being an english coordinator and not mention, mentioning shakespeare the man is england well one of england's great geniuses um so to not have yeah to not have him in your curriculum is uh, would be an interesting choice for me but that's yeah excuse the judgment i just i love i just love his work i love his work different format this week but I think interesting nonetheless you know I think the places that I haven't been that you suggest and I'm definitely going to go to and check out hopefully those listening will too but all that says thank you very much Neil thank you very much thank you Chris thank you and to everyone at home until next time thanks for listening